Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Have you ever had the situation where you had most of your stuff in storage for a while, and then when you got it all back out again, it kind of felt like a holiday season, and you were being showered with all kinds of cool presents? Well, something like that's been going on around here lately. As I slowly expand into a full office of my own, well, all kinds of things that had been buried in storage are now floating back to the surface. And among them are some of my tapes from the lectures at Burning Man. So today I'm going to play what was uh, one of our most highly attended talks of the series. It was given around uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday by Dr. Michael Mithoffer, who is conducting research into the therapeutic uses of MDMA, which uh, has the unfortunate street name of Ecstasy. The title of his talk was MDMA-Assisted Psychotherapy for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, Current Research and Future Possibilities. And uh, since Michael's research is largely funded by MAPS, it only seemed appropriate to have Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, uh, introduce Michael as we all gathered in, in Theon Village's big tent at the 2006 Burning Man Festival. And if you're just joining us here in the Psychedelic Salon for the first time today, well, first of all, welcome home. And secondly, I should warn you that many of the recordings of the lecture series that I produce at Burning Man each year have a lot of extraneous sounds going on in the background. Now, if you've already been to Burning Man, well, then you understand. And if you haven't been there, well, I guess you're just going to have to figure out a way to get there sometime, because... There really isn't any way to explain why us burners get such a goofy smile on our faces when we hear a whistle going off in the background during one of these talks. So now, uh, here we go with a little flavor of the playa at the 2006 Burning Man Festival. Now, um, Michael has really persevered through all sorts of struggles to get the art study started, and uh, it's just been um, such a tremendous blessing to be able to work with Michael and his wife Annie on MDMA research and to kind of see how it's going, and, and we're studying it in so many different ways. And I, I, um, I don't know if you know this, Michael, so maybe this will be a, nice, a really nice time to say this. Um, that there's been through the analysis of the tapes of the therapy sessions that there's now a clue has come up as to how to tell the MDMA sessions from the placebo sessions a verbal thing that you and Annie do that we think you're not a, have you heard about this? good, good, good this is great okay there is a verbal clue that you and Annie do that helps us tell 100% so far between MDMA and um, placebo. And it, it, it also, though, comes from... Um, it, it's a signal from the patient, actually, in a certain kind of a, um, of a dialogue. You know, so, there's a, so it's really it's a signal from the patient in a verbal way that helps... I couldn't guess it. I couldn't guess it. 
Well, the, the signal is that at some point or other in the session, the person with MDMA asks how you and Annie are doing. <laughs> and it's because you're so frequently asking about how they're doing and so caretaking that they end up caring how you're doing and they want to know. <laughs> so, I, 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 Michael, if, you, if your time is, is now. <laughs> I, oh, I should say, well, I'll just say one other thing. Uh, there's one other thing, which is that, you know, Michael has recently um, gotten certified again as an emergency room doctor. So that um, Michael was an emergency room doctor, left to become a psychiatrist, and then um, started our study. And because of the requirements of safety, because we were not in any institution, we had to have an emergency room doctor and nurse in the next room. Uh, full time on call, eight hundred you know dollars at a time or so, and uh, we've spent like forty thousand dollars on on this kind of situation with no call for it. Um, and so Michael went back and has just now got board certified also as an emergency room doctor. able to uh, serve multiple roles. And then the, the role that is evolving for him and Annie is, um, as we're getting it, the, the training team for standardizing a, a therapy technique and then, you know, having it evolve with trying to start with some clear standards. Mike. Thanks, Eric. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry my wife Annie's not here this time, but uh, we do this study together as co-therapists very much the way George Greer and Rick would uh, describe this morning, if you heard that. So, um, maybe I'll just kind of run through a description of the study, a little bit about what our preliminary results are now, and then, then we could talk about it. Um, Rick and I first started talking this about six years ago. We started working on the protocol. We had a lot of great input from other people you've heard from today, uh, George and Rick and um, Charlie Grove and uh, Matt Baggett. So it's been a real community effort. But we finally, um, we had to get FDA, then, then IRB, then DEA approvals, and we finally got all those two and a half years ago. We, we started the study in March of 2004. Right now we've uh, 14 people, it's going to be a 20-person study, 14 people have uh, enrolled, 12 have finished, two are almost finished, and there are a couple more about to start in the screening process. So we're getting fairly close. Uh, we do need some more subjects, and we've had people from as far away as Hawaii. The subject is the study happens in South Carolina, but the MAPS does provide travel and lodging expense for people that need to come a long distance. So the, the, what the study is, it's a studying MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. So it, it's not that we're just studying MDMA, we're studying MDMA as a catalyst for therapy. Um, and all these people have to have had at least six months of therapy and at least one trial of uh, an SSRI for their PTSD and still have significant symptoms. Most of them have had years of both. Um, and um, the PTSD so far has all been crime related either rape, 
childhood sexual abuse, physical assault. We also now have permission from FDA to include uh, war veterans from Iraq or Afghanistan, and we're hoping to recruit some, but we haven't recruited any yet. That's one of the things, it's been an interesting course because we've been back to the FDA repeatedly asking to expand the protocol in almost, in almost every way we've asked based on our data as we went along, they said yes. So what happens is we do a phone screening first. We screened about 100 people by phone to get the 14 participants that we've had so far. Uh, and then they have, uh, if somebody qualifies on the phone screening, they have psychological testing by a psychologist uh, other than us um, and to measure their PTSD scores. And we're using the same measures um, that were used in the Zoloft and Paxil studies because right now Zoloft and Paxil are the only two drugs approved by the FDA for PTSD. So that our primary outcome measures the same scale that they've used. So it's in keeping with what Rick's talking about. We're trying to communicate with the FDA in their own language. Uh, and then we have um, two preparatory sessions where we, Annie and I meet with people First, we meet them for the informed consent. Then we meet with them twice to prepare them for our approach to the session. Then uh, they have, to start with, two all-day MDMAs or placebo sessions a month apart. 60% get uh, MDMA twice. 40% get placebo twice. And in those sessions, we spend the whole day with them. We have music, headphones. You know, we spend some of the time talking to them, some of the time they spend with focus inward. They're lying on a futon, we're sitting on either side of them. Then at the end of that session, they spend the night in the office with a psychiatric nurse there. Annie asks them what they want to eat for dinner ahead of time. She makes a really great meal for them, so it's a very nurturing environment. They spend the night, we come back the next day and meet with them again that morning. And we talk to them every day on the phone for a week. We meet with them every week for follow-up integration sessions for a month. Then we have another all-day session. Uh, then at the end of, then two months after the second one, again after the second one, we meet with them, talk to them every day, meet with them every week. A lot of attention to follow-up and integration, which is really important because especially in these people who have these severe PTSD symptoms, a lot comes up in the MDMA session that may really need a chance to process and integrate afterwards. You know, they may have anxiety or periods of low mood often do come up afterwards. But we don't view that as a, as a problem. We view it as an opportunity to work further with that. And as long as we're in contact with them and uh, have that follow-up, they tend to move through that. It, it tends to become part of the healing so originally that was the only the, the whole protocol um, and the FDA at first said we couldn't give the placebo people MDMA even though we asked for that at the beginning but then after, I finished, after we did the first five subjects the data was very promising so we sent that to the FDA and we said okay we want to give the placebo people MDMA the same pattern two sessions with all the additional follow up and they said yes uh, so that was a a big relief because it was difficult at first just having people get placebo and nothing further 
So, but we were able to go back retroactively and offer MDMA to everybody that got placebo so far. Then after, but we were, we were using a single dose of 125 milligrams at that time because we, we didn't ask for more because we didn't even know if we'd get permission for this. Then after the first 10 people finished, the data was still very promising. We wrote to the FDA and said, we'd like to add a booster dose and we'd like to add a third session. They said, okay. So that's what we're doing now. Um, after the, people only get two placebo sessions, but then at the three month mark, when they, we do repeat symptom measures, we do the unblinding, then we offer them, if they've gotten MDMA twice, we offer them a third MDMA session. If they've gotten placebo, we offer them three MDMA sessions. And they're the same format, about a month apart, all these additional follow-up sessions that go with them. And then along with this, you know, there's, there's careful medical screening, uh, lab tests, EKG, as well as it, we're doing neuropsychological measures in the beginning and after, the, after two MDMA sessions. But also four days after each session, they meet with the psychologists and get repeat outcome measures then, and then they get them again three months out. And that's, that's where the protocol ends now. We're just writing a proposal to get permission to do a longer term, go back and retest people after more than a year. So it's, you can see it's a very rigorous um, uh, kind of well-controlled protocol, the kind that the FDA is used to seeing for drug development. So what we're finding is um, has been really um, very encouraging. Again, all these people have had treatment before and have failed treatment and had to have had a significant level of symptoms. Um, Everybody who's gotten MDMA has had a significant improvement, either temporary or uh, sustained. More than half, the majority of the people have had a very dramatic and sustained improvement. Others have had less dramatic and sustained or dramatic and not so well sustained. But, you know, in this group of people with treatment failure, it's very dramatic. And the other thing is, now that we can get the placebo people MDMA, we have them as their own controls. So we did have one person that had a very strong placebo response who actually thought she got MDMA. Uh, we didn't think she did, but she thought so, and she had a, a good response. The other people who got placebo had no response. Then when they got it, and they went through that whole three months with us, doing those sessions, spending those days with us, having all this other therapy, still no response. Then we did it again with MDMA. They had a really significant response. So, you know, it's small numbers so far, um, but it's really looking like we're, unless something changes radically, it's looking very much like we'll have no reason not to go on to phase three trials, the larger trials that Rick is talking about. Um, yeah. It's double blind. Of course, the blind doesn't. Yeah, you know, we have a pretty good educated guess about an hour into the first session. We're also monitoring blood pressure and pulse every 15 minutes, temperature every hour. So the psychologist who's doing outcome measures, however, doesn't get to see any of that. 
so his blind is actually much better preserved than ours um, but that's a limit, limitation of the study it's, we didn't we, there were pros and cons but we, we elected not to use an active placebo so that's one of the limitations but it's still I think it's significant yeah yeah, good question about what, what do they report as the main ingredient in their good results. Um, it's been pretty interesting. I, I think there are a few people who report that a certain symptom just left at a certain time, like one person with derealization, de- de- very severe derealization, which is a kind of a dissociative symptom. She can tell tell us when that went away. You know, it was it was during one of the sessions, and it was just gone. There have been a few things like that. That's that's not the rule. The rule has really been two things: that they they are able to address their to revisit their trauma without feeling overwhelmed by fear, and their fear of the fear and their fear of their emotions is what is overcome. They they have the experience that actually I can feel these things. I won't be. I'm not overwhelmed, and it's actually I can make it through it. And so I think that's probably the main thing. The other thing on the other side is, as you might predict, they connect with positive experiences. Like they'll say, you know, people come in the beginning. They say, well, yeah, you know, the rape was eight years ago, and I have a you know, my husband's supportive, I've, I've got a good job, my family's great, why don't I, f- I should feel good, I, I, why, don't I, why don't I feel better? They're able to have the experience where they really connect emotionally with that. It's not just an intellectual realization that a lot of good things are happening and I survived. They get it on a deep level. And that, that's the other main ingredient, I think. Yeah. The question is about the, the limitation of uh, giving MDMA to the control group so you don't have a long-term control. That is a limitation. Yeah. It, it would be. Yeah. That's a limitation. We talked about that for a long time. You know, this is a pilot study, and we're, we know we're, we're not really looking to prove efficacy. We're, trying, we're looking to prove that we can work safely with these Subjects and that it has a, at least a strong trend toward being effective, and so it's kind of a trade-off. Um, but uh, we, we decided this was this is going to give us more information about how to design future trials doing it this way, and it does it does increase the data somewhat because we have them as their own controls in the short run, and we do have you know we still got at the three month. Everybody, the blind is maintained for three months. There's repeat testing then. So at that point, we do have a valid control group. For the longer term, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, the question is more specifics about the sessions. Um, Our reference that I used for the FDA was Stan Gross LSD psychotherapy, and Annie and I both trained with Stan in holotropic breath work, so we're we're basically using that model, which is to, uh, in a 
a non-directive way to try to follow and support the way the process comes out for the person. So specifically, um, to start out lying down in the futon with eye shades and headphones we have a program of music and we say you know if you haven't spoken to us in an hour we're going to check in with you then but you can speak to us anytime you want we also have an agreement that if if nothing about their trauma comes up at a certain at a certain non-specified point that we we can bring it up we've never had to do that it always comes up so um, what happens is we a rhythm develops between periods of them lying with their eyes closed and focusing inward and periods talking to us. And, you know, sometimes they determine that themselves. Other times, if we've been talking for a while, we may suggest to them, you know, maybe this would be a good time to go back inside and just see what the medicine is going to show you about this. So it's, it's that kind of approach. It's, you know, we're, we're actually writing a manual which is kind of anathema, but we, if we get to go, if we're going to go to phase three larger trials with multi-centers, we have to have a manual that describes what we're doing, and we figured, well, we should be able to describe what we're doing. So we're working on that, but it's basically that, that kind of approach, very non-directive approach. Okay. Yeah. I'll take those backwards because the last one's simpler. Uh, what part of the question was how did we get around the fact that NDMA is in Schedule 1? Well, I had to get a special Schedule 1 license from DEA uh, to, to have the MDMA, to order and, and possess the MDMA. That was what took the longest. It took uh, two more years after we got FDA approval for the DEA to stop stalling. Because the FDA could have, very, could have said no without any problem. Once the FDA said yes, the DA really couldn't say no. They, it, it would, I would have had to have a drug-related felony or they would have had to show that we could, it would have been diverted. And we got a safe bolted to the floor and alarms and all that. So that's the way that works. You can get a Schedule One research license. It's a separate DA license for that specific drug, for that specific study. Um, the other question was about concerns about toxicity of MDMA and the fact that we didn't maybe they hadn't tried other things like homeopathy or other um, gentler uh, or less less toxic kind of treatments. Um, were there specific what are the specific concerns you have about the MDMA toxicity? Yeah, I think well it's an important concern that we, we addressed at length with with FDA, you know, we reviewed all the world literature on MDMA, and we update that twice a year uh, now. So um, it is a it is something to be taken very seriously. Our understanding of the data about neurotoxicity is that uh, there's still a question about neurotoxicity, or at least uh, decreases in some neural functions with heavy recreational use. Um, it looks like there probably is some effect, although that is still controversial. John Halpin's study with the, the people that with pure MDMA users is going to help answer that. So far in preliminary results, it looks like less than 50 times there's no effect. There, it's still not known if there's an effect higher than that. 
all those studies are kind of problematic. What, what was more reassuring to us is that there have been studies using this dosage range uh, in a controlled setting with before and after neuropsych testing and before and after PET scans. Those are the ones done in Switzerland by Franz Goldenwitter. And none of those have shown any effect. So, it, you know, it's not, it's research. We have a 20-page informed consent telling people that we don't know for sure whether this could cause neurotoxicity. But it, it looks like there's a lot of reason to think that certainly in this dosage range, this number of times, we don't have any evidence for neurotoxicity. And our, our neurotox neuropsychiatric studies that we're doing are bearing that out so far. Um, liver, it's theoretically, there can be problems with liver. There have been reported cases. We uh, exclude anyone who has liver disease, and we measure liver enzymes at the beginning, and then we measure them again in the week following the second session to make sure they're not elevated. We haven't seen any problems. So I think, you know, you're right. It's, it's, um, it has effects on the body, and if um, it's, it's always a, like a risk-benefit consideration for any drug, I think. But we feel pretty comfortable that this is a, a favorable risk-benefit ratio. But, you know, I wish there were more studies on things like homeopathy or PTSD. You know, the reason we chose SSRIs is because those are the two things the FDA has approved for, um, for PTSD. And, you know, there are lots of limitations to this kind of rigid, double-blind study um, with these standardized measures. There are a lot of things that these, these measures don't measure. There are a lot of limitations to, to this as opposed to more descriptive kind of research. But this is what it takes to get FDA approval for a drug. So this is why we're approaching it this way. And I, and then I think it also, there are strengths to double-blind studies too. They have their own strengths and we're trying to capitalize on that, recognizing that there are lots of other questions to be asked and answered. Any other thoughts? Yeah. That's that's our thinking about our ultimate goal. You know, we're it. Our goal with this study is to find out whether we can demonstrate that, that there would be worthwhile to study that further in order to do what you're talking about. In order to, she, she's mentioning getting a drug approval for prescription use. What it takes for the FDA is you have to have phase one studies, which is what Matt Baggett's done and other. Charlie Grove has done just measuring physiology in normal volunteers. Then you have to have phase two studies, and ours is the first one of those, which is when you give the drug to people with a problem and measure the therapeutic effect, and you do that in a, a small group. Then if that, if that phase two study is promising, then the FDA requires two phase three studies, which would be probably total of at least 500 people in multi-center. So that's what we're hoping to move on to phase three and then the possibility that they would approve it as a prescription medicine again or for the first time. I, I wonder if with your knowledge you might be somebody closer to the laboratory. Yeah, the, the question and comment is about the impurity in, in street 
ecstasy. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not really on top of that. I'm not very knowledgeable about about that. Um, what is actually in the the ecstasy these days? It is a real concern. You know, that's that's one of the tragedies about this drug policy. You know, people don't get uh, information and they don't get they don't know what they're taking and, and um, I wish I had a better answer but I, I think it's it's something you need to be really concerned about yeah the question is about how how sustainable is the effect um, it really looks like for some people two sessions is enough to really significantly heal their PTSD. It, it looks like for other people, more sessions would be better. That's why we asked for the third session. It seemed pretty clear that there were some people that were kind of really having some benefit, but it took them a while to get kind of used to the setting and the drug, and that a third session would be helpful, and that's what we're finding. It seems that the third session is adding something. Now, what the uh, what the optimal number of sessions is, I don't know. It's probably not three. You know, we, we started with trying to get something from the FDA. So, uh, well, we don't know that either. You know, right now, sustained means three months. At, at the three-month point, their symptom levels are still low. Now we're going to go back and look at after a year, and we'll find out. Our impression is that, yeah, it is in at least some of the people that we've had contact with, it looks like at least a lot of the effect is sustained past a year with even even two sessions. So that, whatever the number, that's kind of the model, not that you have to keep using this continuously, but that, you know, it, it gets, it somehow removes the obstacles that are preventing, have been preventing the people from from healing from their PTSD. And you know, the, the fear and, and problems with trust that are part of PTSD are also real obstacles to the therapy of PTSD. So our, our thinking is if this lowers levels of fear and increases the ability to trust in the therapeutic relationship, it, it may remove those obstacles that were preventing them from, from healing. The other thing is they, you know, these are people with rather severe PTSD who are working with their trauma. A couple of people have said, you know, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. They've said, this has been really helpful to me, but I don't know why they call it ecstasy, because it's been really hard work, a lot of difficult emotions coming up, and it, it, they think of it as a therapeutic tool. They don't think of it as a recreational thing, in a lot of cases, is what it seems. Yeah. What our vision is for the long term, long term, if, if it were to become a prescription medicine, well, we don't. Let's switch chairs. We don't think that um, we're not picturing that doctors would write prescriptions for people to take home. Uh, we're picturing that you would need sort of like a methadone clinic. You know, most stuff, you can't just write a methadone prescription because you have a medical license and a DA number. You have to have a, a methadone clinic that's licensed. So that's kind of what we're envisaging, is people who have a particular interest in this, have a certain training, 
and set up the appropriate set and setting, then they'd be allowed to use it. I think that would be the next step, the first step if it were to become legal. Well, thanks very much. It's really fun to share this stuff with I was interested in hearing Michael's overview of the current state of investigation into the toxicity of MDMA. You probably remember that uh, bogus story about MDMA causing holes in the brain that was being told by everyone from MTV to Oprah. So I won't bore you with the story again. Uh, Even the National Institute on Drug Abuse has taken those fake brain scans off their website. But I will tell you this. MDMA was the first so-called drug that I ever tried. I was almost 42 years old, and at the time I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer living in Dallas, Texas. And uh, at the time, MDMA was legal, where I doubt if I would even have tried it. Now today I'm still Irish, uh, (laughs) but I can guarantee you that I'm no longer a Catholic Republican lawyer, and I doubt if I'll ever even visit Dallas again. So if you're uh, speaking with the point of view of a Catholic or a Republican, well, I guess you could fairly say that MDMA is a dangerous drug. Because, uh, hey, look what it did to Larry. He moved to California, changed his name to Lorenzo, and now he can be found hanging out in cyberspace with his friends in the psychedelic salon. (laughs) That's what they're saying back in Texas these days, anyhow. And all I can say to my old friends is that I'm sure having a much better time than I was back when I was commuting to my little rat-like cubicle every day. Wow, (laughs) I'm not sure where all that came from. What I was actually trying to get at was the fact that back in the early 80s in Dallas, none of us really knew what we were doing when it came to using MDMA, or ecstasy as it was called back then. By the way, the uh, reason I don't use the word ecstasy anymore is because what passes on the streets uh, and at parties uh, these days as ecstasy is uh, quite often something else. And uh, what we're talking about here is MDMA, pure MDMA. Anyway, back then uh, I became an MDMA abuser, big time. I won't go into the brutal details, but uh, I got so out of control with my MDMA use that it eventually came to a point where even extremely large doses had no effect on me. And uh, eventually I got back in control of myself and stopped using it completely. And uh, after two years I tried it again and it still had zero effect on me. So I laid off for another seven years before trying it again and to my surprise and much to my delight it was almost as powerful an experience as it was the very first time I took it. Now, my point isn't to uh, expose my own stupidity in abusing this wonderful substance. The point is that uh, even with very large and very frequent uses of MDMA over quite a long period of time, at least in my single instance, well, it didn't seem to have any serious long-term effects on my brain. So, uh, if you've been using this magical medicine and are finding that it isn't working like it once did, Well, you might want to think about leaving it alone for a while, maybe a long while. But in any event, if I were you, I wouldn't worry about having done any long-term damage to your brain, and uh, for sure you haven't burned any holes in it. Another uh, question that I get from time to time in various forms comes from Stan, who writes, 
Though I've been interested in psychedelic medicines for a long time, I've not yet had my first journey into the unknown. My question to you is, what psychedelic is best to start with? I was assuming I should start with small doses of LSD. Do you think that would be a good idea? Well, Sam, in order to keep the screwheads from coming after me, I have to remind you that using any of the sacred medicines that are on one kind of schedule or another can get you into a lot of trouble with some of the less enlightened members of our species. And uh, that fact alone can be the trigger for a bad trip. In my case, I was lucky because my first experience was with MDMA, and at the time it was still legal. And so I didn't have any unnecessary paranoia added on top of the normal anxiety of doing something like this for the first time. And uh, then after that, I did MDMA frequently and for a long time before trying anything else. It was over a year, in fact, before I got up the courage to try LSD. And in my case, I think it would have been a bad idea for me to start out on this path uh, with LSD. And are you ready for this one? <laughs> my opinion is that the first time you use LSD, not only should it be in a safe place and with an experienced guide by your side, I also believe that a large dose is uh, in order for the first time. Now, not many of my friends will agree with this, uh, the large dose part, that is, but I've seen more people have trouble on low doses than on high ones. So, go figure, huh? And I guess this points out exactly why we need studies like the one Michael and Annie Mithoffer are conducting. Without some systematic investigation, uh, like what was taking place in the 1950s and early 1960s, we are always going to be left with widely varying anecdotal advice about how to best use these sacred medicines. Although it's a shame that we haven't progressed significantly in our knowledge of these things since the 60s, I am happy to see a resurgence in the sanctioned research into the use of psychedelics and related substances like MDMA, and I'm sure it's a positive sign of things to come. Now, before I go, I should mention, as always, that this is a podcast of the Psychedelic Salon and is protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And if you still have questions, just send them to me, Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com Thanks again to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the salon and also to Michael Mithoffer who braved the trials of the playa at Burning Man and graced us with his time for this interactive conversation that we just heard. Now before I go, I want to leave you with one final thought. Our little clan's elder recently proposed that we consider doing one thing each month that we would still remember five years from now. So I now have a calendar for five years from now, and on it I'm marking the event from a corresponding month this year that was so significant that I'm sure I'll still remember it clearly five years from now. And by the way, in case you haven't done the math yet, five years from now is the year 2012. So how about it? Am I the only one who couldn't come up with something significant enough for each of the first three months of this year so far? I did have one such perfect moment in March, though, and now I'm on the lookout for my memorable moment in April. It's an interesting concept, don't you think? Well, 
For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.